Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. It's me again. Glad you guys are here. Um, I said earlier, and I'll say it again, I'm glad to be with you guys. Uh, last week, my family and I, we were down in North Carolina. One of my best friends from high school was getting married, and I got to uh, be involved in the wedding. I got to be a groomsman, and um, it's such a privilege to be back with you guys. But I know that you guys were blessed. I got to listen to Pastor Bruce bring the word of the Lord and exhort us to live as a colony because we don't live here. Our lives are there, right? And we are wayfaring strangers, and we will worship in a strange land as a colony, as an outpost of our king and our kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus 34 is where I want you again. We're going to be back there this week, continuing on in this series called A Glimpse of Glory, under the impression that as we see the glory of God, we are changed by it, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, right? So uh, I, I want to start off our time by actually telling you a story that didn't get a lot of press when it was happening, but is now getting a lot of press in the last decade. Um, so it's a story of, of, of a civil war in Rwanda and Burundi in 1994. I don't know if you know of the civil war between the Hutus and the Tutsis. I'm going to tell you the, about it. On April 6, 1994, a plane carrying Rwandan President Juvenal Habyaimana and Burundi President Cyprian Hadiamira. Gertrude, how did I do? Good. Okay. This plane was shot out of the sky by rockets, a successful coup attempt at a power grab from Hutu extremists. This event triggered a 100-day spree of mass genocide of the Tutsi people group, a result of built-up tension between them and the Hutu people. It's estimated that about 200,000 Hutus, everyday citizens of Rwanda, participated in this slaughter of over 800,000 Tutsis both men, women, and children. Hutu neighbors killed their Tutsi neighbors with machetes. Hutu children killed their Tutsi friends from school. Tutsi women were intentionally raped by Hutu men infected with HIV AIDS in an attempt to exterminate the Tutsi bloodline. The genocide stopped after 100 days later when the Rwandan Patriotic Front seized the capital and took back power. Guys, this sounds like a plot to a horror movie. And when that happened, after this hundred days was done, years of damage had been done to this family, to this people group, with hundreds of thousands guilty. Trials were held on federal, state, and local levels, and thousands were imprisoned for their crimes. Now, in the last 10 years, the last decade, most of those who were imprisoned for their crimes during this genocide have begun to be released. They've fulfilled their sentences and they're being released back into the villages that they lived in, back next to their neighbors, both Hutu and Tutsis. And the world watched as this exodus out of the prisons into the communities happened by people who had been condemned by the law for committing crimes during this genocide. And the world expected this mass civil war to start again. And yet the world has been totally shocked by what's happened in local villages. Murderers are being welcomed back into their villages by both Hutus and Tutsis. Peace and reconciliation reign 
in families and massive works of reconciliation are happening throughout the country. Those on the outside looking in on this are being amazed. They're utterly shocked. They can't explain it. They're saying that there has never before been such a comprehensive reckoning with such a communal violence or mass atrocity. There are, there are journals, there are articles out there looking at how to explain this reconciliation. They're coming out to try to explain how this phenomenon can be taking place. And they're all boiling it down. All the ones watching and writing and studying what's happening right now in these communities. They're all boiling it down to one main question that they're asking. And the question that the world is asking about these people is, how are they defining forgiveness? How are they defining forgiveness? I read a dissertation by an atheist philosopher. He was writing for the graduate school of Vanderbilt. And in his dissertation, he traced the phenomenon of this radical forgiveness and hospitality for criminals back to a Kenyarwandan word called imbabazi. Can you say that? Imbabazi. This word means, if you ask for it, it means a complete pardoning of all wrongs with no continuing consequences. That's how they're defining their forgiveness. It's a complete pardoning of all the things you've done wrong and there's no consequences as a result of it. You know, this word, imbabazi, is commonly used to describe the forgiveness God grants sinners in the gospel. You see, analysts, sociologists cannot help but look in on this situation and see the size of this outrageous forgiveness and attribute it to the fact that so many Tutsis are believers in the one true God who gives imbabazi, who gives outrageous, even scandalous forgiveness. The world is looking at a radical example of forgiveness. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be looking at the size of God's outrageous forgiveness that he describes in Exodus 34. And guys, I promise you that what we're going to find in Exodus 34 is that this breathtaking reconciliation between these two people groups, the Tutsis and the Hutus, that's just a mere shadow, a mere crumb of the great reconciliation based on the forgiveness of our God. That's what we're going to see this morning. And so this is our text for this morning, Exodus 34. We've read it like, what, nine times? Exodus 34, verses six through seven. So let's, let's get after it together. I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation. It says, and Yahweh, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. As this is the word of the Lord, and today we're focusing in on the next piece of God's glory. 
that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In other words, God is forgiving. Can we say those words together? One, two, three. God is forgiving. This is incredible. Now, obviously, if we're going to talk about forgiveness, we're going to have to first also talk through that which needs forgiveness, that which is begging for forgiveness, that which requires forgiveness, which means this morning for us to really understand God's forgiveness and the forgivingness of his nature. We're going to have to first spend some time talking about sin. Now, I wish that this was a conversation that we could have in my living room. Uh, I wish we could have some coffee, some crumpets, some Sanka, whatever you guys like to drink here, sweet tea from Bojangles. And we could just have this conversation because it's, this is a hard conversation to have, especially in this kind of environment. When we talk about sin, it's very uncomfortable. It kind of unmoves us a little bit. And when we talk about sin, by God's grace, all of us will feel outed, will feel exposed. And sometimes that doesn't feel good. And so, yeah, I wish we were in our living room, but a hundred of you can't fit in our living room. So we'll have to settle for this, which is why I'd like to call this place the living room. But all that to say, we are gonna have to talk through something that's very difficult. Now, God uses three words here to describe that which needs forgiveness, right? Three words. He says, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about the depth of these three things because these are like the bad words of the Bible, right? And I wanna talk about the depth of these things because once we see the depth of these things then we're gonna see the greatness of God's forgiveness, It'll be easier once we get to that place. So we have iniquity, we have transgression, and we have sin. Now, you might think that these are all the same and they are very closely related, but they are not identical. They all talk differently about this concept of sin. So we're gonna talk about iniquity and then transgression and then sin. So let me give you those real quick. The first thing that we see is iniquity. Can you say that word? One, two, three iniquity. Now we're going to do some Hebrew this morning because the Hebrew actually helps us understand this a little bit more. The Hebrew word for iniquity is avon. Can you say avon? Avon. I appreciate the response. Can you say ava? Ava is the verb. Ava is a closely related verb and it means to be bent or to be crooked. Iniquity carries this idea of twistedness of crookedness and been out of shape, right? In other words, it's this idea that there was something that was supposed to be level, that was supposed to be straight, plumb, whatever you see as that, but it got somehow contorted and distorted. So avon, iniquity, references things like, where, like lying, where your words, which were supposed to be leveled in truth, are crooked. Avon, iniquity, refers to murder, where your desires for someone have become so bent out of shape that they are now hateful. Adultery is iniquity as well, right? Where your affections for your spouse become so twisted that you're desiring somebody else. You know, what's even more dangerous about iniquity 
is that the things that are iniquity, the things that are crooked and bent out of shape for us can become the straight. The things that were once crooked and twisted can become the new normal. Just give it enough time. Right? When you continue to walk down that path of crookedness and been out of shapeness and distortedness, you will find yourself walking down that path routinely and it becomes your normal. Just give it enough time. And what's crazy even more so is that iniquity doesn't just talk about the crookedness itself. It talks about the consequences of our crookedness, of our been out of shapeness, of our twistedness in scripture. So for example, twisted pornography habits or crooked flirtation with someone who is not your spouse will lead to the consequence of broken intimacy in your marriage. See the twistedness and the consequence are iniquity. Distorted gambling habits will lead to financial ruin for your family. Warped habits of destructive gossip will lead to you literally losing all your friends. Broken relationships and contorted habits of isolation will lead to loneliness. So the thing is many of us, if we'll be honest with ourselves, are in that place right now if we're allowing God's spirit to search us and know us, the reality is a lot of us have accepted a crooked thing as a normal thing. A lot of us have allowed the twisted to become the straight for us. We've walked down that path long enough to where it's become our normal and we can't even see our own twistedness and their consequences. And you know, the, the devastating thing about all of this is that God will let us sit in our iniquity. That might not sound loving, but it is. He gives us the dignity. He gives us the dignity to be able to bear the consequences of our own twistedness. That's what Romans 1 talks about. He gave them over. Not that he intentionally said, all right, I'm throwing you at this. They wanted twistedness. And he said, all right, go sit in it. You'll see how destructive it is. He gives us that dignity because how could we ever learn if we didn't? So this is, this is iniquity. This is, this is crooked beliefs and therefore behaviors that then lead to twisted consequences. Are you uncomfortable yet? Because I'm totally uncomfortable. We get to the next one. Transgression. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Transgression. Let's get some Hebrew in here. We've got Pesha. Can you say Pesha? Not the band Petra. The closely related Hebrew verb is Pasha. Can you say Pasha? Pasha, you guys are hanging in there. I appreciate it. That word means to break trust. It means to violate the trust of others. So let me give you some examples of Pasha. Let me give you some examples of transgression. 
So in Old Testament law, let's say you had your house and, and somebody broke into your house and stole a few things. That would be what called what? Robbery, right? Burglary or robbery in our sense. It'd be, it'd be robbery in Old Testament law. But what if you found out that the person who broke into your house and stole your stuff was a neighbor who you've welcomed into your house several times. You had those coffee and crumpets and bojangles at your coffee table with them. And they're the ones who broke into your house because they knew you were gone. That then turns into transgression. That turns into Pesha. That turns into violating trust. Wouldn't you feel violated if it was your neighbor who broke into your own house? What would you do? I'd move. I'd either want new neighbors or a new neighborhood because I couldn't live there long. I wouldn't be able to trust them. They violated my trust. They transgressed. That's what this word revolves around. It's a violation of trust that leads to a broken relationship. So I'll go back to it. Gossip is also transgression. Deceit and lying breaks trust. Lust breaks trust. Because Genesis 3 was all about breaking trust. We didn't trust God and his word. That was transgression. So we as human beings have a proneness to transgress. We do things that break trust in relationships. And if you've been in any kind of committed relationship for any amount of time, you will find yourself, if you're actually self-aware enough, prone to this. And it's devastating. So we have iniquity, we have transgression, and I see you guys are getting more and more comfortable with this. We have the third one, sin. Can you say sin? One, two, three. Sin, the Hebrew word for sin itself is chata. Good luck with that one. You say it, one, two, three, chata. It means to miss the mark. It's actually an archery term. It means to fail to hit the goal. So for example, in Judges chapter 20, there's a tribe, the tribe of Benjamin trained up this really small army of, of guys who were just perfect with slingshots, right? And like they would, you know, the whole William Tell bit, they'd be able to throw something or shoot something. It'd be to hit the apple off the head. Judges 20 says that these guys were able to hit the hair off of somebody's head and not hata it. They wouldn't miss their mark. You know, there's a Proverbs actually. There's a proverb that says you shouldn't make hasty decisions because you might hata your way. In other words, you might miss your destination if you are too hasty. So sin at its root is a failure to hit the mark, a failure to hit the goal. You have missed the goal. And what is the goal? Well, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the goal. God's radiance and God's glory is what we are aiming at. We fall totally short of it. We have missed the mark You see, both in a vertical and a horizontal way, we miss the mark. So not only is God deserving of all glory and we miss that mark, but others are deserving of honor and we fail to treat them as such. That is missing the mark because every human being, no matter race, 
no matter gender, no matter past, no matter occupation, no matter their financial income, every human being is made in the image of God and is designed to represent God's creativeness and God's glory. Therefore, every human being from the moment of conception is deserving of honor and dignity. So sin, when I sin against a brother or another human being, I am failing to miss the mark of what they deserve from me. Sin is a failure to love God rightly, to hit the mark rightly with God, and also not loving others by treating them with the respect and the honor that they deserve because they are image bearers. So like, for example, you have the 10 commandments, right? You have the 10 commandments and, and, and half of them basically describe how we can fail to love God and the other half describes how we can fail to love people. In fact, they're so intertwined that basically if I fail to love people, I'm failing to love God. I'm missing the mark with people. Therefore, I'm missing the mark with God. Guys, it's, the example would be Potiphar's wife. Remember Joseph and that scandalous scene? Where, where Potiphar's wife comes after Joseph because apparently he's a handsome, rugged dude. And, and Potiphar's trying to seduce him. And he's like, no, how could I chata against my God? How could I miss the mark against my God? So failure to honor her would have been failure to honor God. If he had indulged in what she was offering, that would have been missing the mark and therefore it would have been sin against the Lord. Failure to honor a human being is failure to honor God. That's sin. So guys, this is, this is iniquity. This is transgression and this is sin. I love you. We are full of iniquity. We are transgressors and we miss the mark. And here's why I wish we could have this conversation in my living room. Because what I'm about to tell you, if I failed to tell you, wouldn't be loving. I wouldn't be doing you a favor if I didn't mention this part. God hates iniquity and transgression and sin. Because God hates it. To, to God, in God's word, he describes iniquity, transgression, and sin as putrefying sores, as filth, as unpayable debt, as one massive scarlet stain. And one day his white hot wrath will burn against all iniquity, transgression, and sin. And the problem is, so far, this just sounds like hellfire and brimstone. 
And a lot of people will stop the conversation here. They'll tune out because they've just been outed. They've just been exposed for who they actually are. And we walk away because what we're finding is that there's this heavy burden that is laying on all of us. And it's too much to bear. Realizing that you and I are, are broken, that we're sinful, that we're transgressors and full of iniquity creates this heavy burden that is too heavy for us to carry. Even David, the psalmist, describes this in Psalm 38. This is what he says. For my iniquities have gone over my head. They are a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. I can't carry my sin. I will only be destroyed by it as will we all. So if I were to say, that's it, deal with it yourself. That would be the rest of every moral religion. Deal with this yourself because you've got this heavy burden and you've got to figure out how to cast it off. If that's where we stopped the Bible, we'd be missing out on all of it. If we stopped the conversation of God's word at this point here, where we just said, all right, you've got this heavy weight, deal with it. We would be missing God's heart and his plan for the world because the conversation doesn't stop here. Therefore, you and I should not stop here. We should not stop with this recognition that we have just this heavy burden that lays on top of us that we can't deal with because God doesn't stop the conversation there. He doesn't just call us sinners and leave us to ourselves. No, he has sat and defined himself as a God who forgives all of these things. Every single iniquity, transgression, and sin, he says, I will forgive it. I forgive these things. They are mine to carry, not yours, I will carry them to the cross. He has defined it in his nature. Have you, did, have we seen anywhere in here that God literally, he says, judges sinners and casts them off? No, he says, I am willing to forgive sinners. This is who he is. He's made this inherent to his glory. The more you and I press into what forgiveness is, the more we see how glorious our God is. The more we realize the depth of our sinfulness, the more we realize the greatness of his forgiveness. God loves to forgive people. He loves to say, you are pardoned. I am carrying your sin for you. In fact, this word forgiveness paints that picture literally. So if you, if you like to write in your Bibles, I would recommend that you do so. Circle the word forgives. We talked about it a few weeks ago with this idea of pardon. The word forgive literally means to carry or to bear in the Hebrew. It means to carry or to bear. So when God says, I forgive your iniquity, transgression, and sin. He says, I am taking that heavy burden off you and I am going to carry it myself. I will bear the full weight of your sin, guilt, and shame. And God has said that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, meaning that he is inclined to fully, freely, and forever carry our sin for us. Full, free, and forever forgiveness. 
Full, free, and forever forgiveness. He forgives fully to the point where he's not holding on to anything afterwards. He doesn't forget a part of your sin to carry on himself, right? And he forgives freely, right? Meaning I, you don't have to pay him anything. You don't have to earn anything in order to get his forgiveness. He says, I'll give it to you freely. And he says he's gonna do it forever, right? He's gonna forgive us forever, meaning he's not gonna go back on his word and say, oh, you're not forgiven anymore. I'm done, right? You, you just gotta get out of here. No, he says, I will forever, eternally carry your sin to the cross. All sin in life has been forgiven at the cross. And so if this is what the word forgiveness means, have you ever wondered why it's so hard to forgive people who've done you such a great wrong? It's because at the core of it, when you decide to forgive someone, you're deciding to carry the full weight of their transgression for them. Right? That's why forgiveness is so difficult because you're willing to say, hey, I'll carry the pain of that. I'll carry the pain of that because I'd rather have you than carry, and, and rather than have you carry the burden of your pain. I'd rather carry it because I want you instead. Because I'd rather be reconciled. That's why forgiveness is so hard because you're deciding to carry the weight of all their transgression. One author put it this way, Andre Seyou, he said this, forgiveness is a brutal mathematical transaction done with fully engaged faculties. Right? You just don't happen to stumble upon forgiveness, right? You've got to be engaged with it. He says, it's my pain instead of yours. I eat the debt. I absorb the misery I wanted to dish out on you and you go scot-free. I don't know why they put my name there. This is what God is like, right? He loves to take on the weight of our sin and our guilt. And he did so in his only son. That's why in some of the most popular passages about what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, you see the sense of Jesus carrying for us. It's all rooted in forgiveness. So for example, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh, the Lord has laid on this suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Jesus is carrying all of our crookedness and their consequences. And we also see in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins. He carried them. He bore in our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Guys, God offers to carry the full weight of our sin and guilt freely and forever. That's forgiveness. Now, here's the thing about forgiveness. I know some of you might at first be like, well, wait, that's not what I've heard often. Um, I wanna be careful in how I say this. Forgiveness is conditional. Not in the sense of offering it, I choose to offer it unconditionally, right? It's free, right? You don't have to do anything about it. I unconditionally offer forgiveness, but in order for the forgiveness to take its full effect, I have to be willing to receive it. In other words, I have to be willing to take my load off and say, all right, God, you can carry this now. So forgiveness in a sense is conditional. God's offer of forgiveness is unconditional. It, it, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. His offer is unconditional. But if you refuse to say, God, I'll accept that offer by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone, because Jesus bore that weight for me on the cross. If you refuse to say that, then the reality is you will forever still carry 
the weight of your sin. Forgiveness, honestly, is like a fist bump. I'll hold my hand out. You can, you can fist bump it if you want. And if you do, it'll lead to an explosion of forgiveness. But if you don't take that, then you're still carrying the weight. So in that sense, forgiveness is conditional. The offer is unconditional. And the price is belief. Will you believe that God has forgiven you of all your twistedness, your iniquities, all your broken trusts, your transgression, and all the ways you've missed the mark, all your sin? Will you believe that? Now, I think we have to land this into three categories of people here today. Because honestly, I do believe that there are three groups of people represented here today. First, there are those who have been forgiven, who've received that invitation and yet need to believe it again. That's gonna be those of us who have followed Christ and maybe have grown complacent in the fact of what all God is carrying for us. So what that could lead to maybe is it could lead to where we don't really care much about how we live because we know he'll just carry our sin for us and to carry the weight of it. And so we fall into, uh, fall out of like this humble gratitude for that forgiveness. And now we're more concerned of what all God can do for us rather than seeing what all God has done for us. You know, one of the things that as it's, as bitter as it tastes in the mouth, having this conversation feels good in the soul because it reminds me of what I was and it reminds me of what all God has done for me. Because being forgiven is something God has defined himself as. And when I approach the Lord and I'm feeling filthy, feeling like I'm covered in the filth that God hates. I have a dad in heaven. When I go into his presence and I say, God, I, I, I know that I've broken trust with you. I said that I would repent and I haven't. I can go to my dad and I say, God, would you forgive me? And because it's inherent to his character, because of Jesus Christ on the cross, he always fully, freely, and forever says, son, you are forgiven. And I tell you, when I recognize that truth in approaching the Lord, those are the sweetest moments of intimacy I have with our father in heaven. Those moments when I recognize he's not holding against me my actions. He's carrying them for me. That's the warmth. That's the right belief. I would say that if you are feeling distant from the Lord, if you're feeling far away and not near, and your, idol, your, your love for God is kind of idle, it's very likely because you are out of touch with the size of your sin and the size of God's forgiveness. So my challenge for those of you who have been forgiven yet need to believe it again, my challenge would be simply continue to go before the Lord 
Ask him to search you and know you, to show you your iniquity and transgression and sin. And then confess it to the Lord, ask forgiveness and understand that in Christ, all of that has been done away with. As far as the East is from the West, so far as God removed your transgressions from you in Christ. So one way that this lands for this group is um, I, got a, I had the privilege of meeting with a, a believer in our church this past week and, and she was dealing with sadness and sorrow and we kind of talked through the bottom of it. It got all the way to the point where she was believing that she had failed as a parent. And of course, no parenting is perfect. I, I, none of us are perfect parents. So all of us in some way in our parenting have iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so I literally just said to her, you realize though that God's forgiveness carries that for you. You are forgiven for your failures as a parent. And I've never seen such a downcast soul turn to joy so quickly. Her face lit up. She started crying and she said, I feel like I'm letting it go and letting God carry this for me. You can have the same thing. So that's first those who are forgiven and yet need to believe it again. And then there's a group of people in here. I'm guessing not as many, but there still probably will be some. Those who need to believe, they need forgiveness. There's a group in here of people, very likely, who, who are hearing all of this and, and you're, you're digesting it and, and, and you've been thinking this whole time, hmm, man, that's not me. I'm not that bad. I ain't Hitler. Right? So you're trying to kind of compare yourself to the worst. And so you make this devastating mistake of, of dismissing all of what we've talked about this morning. And you're going to go about your life like normal, all the while not even realizing how heavy your sin is because it has become the normal for you. God says, if you say you have no sin, you have deceived yourself. In other words, you don't really know who you are and you aren't really self-aware. So I would just say for those who need to believe that they need forgiveness, don't buy into this veneer that our culture puts up that says you have to have everything together. And when you mess up, the mob mentality comes after you. No, the reality is the moment you arrive at this place where you say, hey, I don't have everything together and I realize I am more broken than I, I think I am and I need God to forgive me of my sin, at that place you will find a freedom. Like never before, you'll find a freedom from keeping up the facade that we all knew was fake in the first place. So that's the second group. And then the third group of people that we need to talk through are those who need to believe they can be forgiven. Those who need to believe that they can be forgiven. As some of you have been carrying a heavy weight of your sin, of guilt and of shame for far too long because you're under the impression, under the belief that you think you have too much of it and God doesn't want you. And God is unwilling to carry it for you or God can't even carry it for you. 
if that's you, you need to look right here and you need to hear me when I say this. You are not too far gone. We sang it at the beginning. Our God is mighty to save. His arms are not too short to reach you, no matter how filthy you may feel you are. No matter how guilty you think you are, no matter how condemned you believe you are, no matter how messed up your life was, is right now, your sin is not too much for God to forgive. Guys, God is limitless in his character. Do you think his forgiveness then is limited? Absolutely not. God's forgiveness knows no borders. You want to know why I know that? Because the grave is empty. Because Jesus rose from the dead. The check clear. Jesus's payment was paid in full. And when he rose from the dead, that was a sign that God said, it is finished. It is done. I, you can have new life now in Christ if you just believe in him alone. An empty tomb means sin isn't too much for Jesus to carry. So for those of you who need to believe that you need forgiveness, my invitation for you is to come, all who are weary and heavy burdened, to Jesus. He will give you rest. This is the size of God's outrageous forgiveness. The size of his imbabazi. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.